Church, I'd like you to take your Bibles and find the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And we're going to be reading the last four verses of that chapter, Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. And if you'll follow along with me. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Our Father, we ask that you would take the reading of your word and the teaching of your word. That through your Holy Spirit, you would cause it to come alive. And that you would speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the ways, primary ways that we grow in our walk with God and in our understanding of who He is, are those moments when we are reading, studying, listening, whatever the case may be, and suddenly there's a gap that appears in our, in our heart, in our mind. A gap between what God is saying and what God is revealing to you. A gap between that picture, that truth, that reality, and where you have been. And when you and I see that gap between what God is saying is true and what is real, and we see the distance between what He is saying and what we have been saying, what He says is true and what we have thought was true, it's at that moment that you and I respond to Him and we say, yes, Lord, and we repent and we lay down our preconceptions, our ideas, our notions of truth to embrace what God is showing us. And the more we do that, the more we say yes to God, the more we have those moments of where we see the gap, the more that you and I experience growth, spiritual growth. I believe this passage of Scripture for the disciples then and for the disciples now represents one of those moments. The Lord Jesus is doing what He has been doing all along. If you look at verse 35, it says that Jesus went about all the cities and villages, and he was doing what he does. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. And this is a summary statement. It appears in other areas of this gospel, other parts of the gospel, and he does the same thing. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. And it shows us some things about the Lord and his ministry and how he does ministry. I think the first thing it shows me is that he doesn't fail. He never fails. 
It says all the diseases, whatever problem was presented to him, whatever need was presented to him, he had the ability, he had the capacity to put it exactly the way that God wanted it to be. He does not fail. He doesn't stop. He was continuously moving from place to place, encountering people in groups and individuals, and he was relentless in the preaching, the teaching, and the healing. He doesn't stop. He doesn't quit. The other thing that's obvious from that verse is that he's concerned with all of the cities and the towns, not just one, not just one place, not just one individual. Although he's very uh, focused on you as an individual, he's not concerned with only you as an individual. And it says he goes to all the cities and the towns in the region, all of them. And he is not failing and he is not quitting and everyone's included. No one is left out. If we're not careful, we can come to a place like this, as beautiful as it is, a piece of property, a building, and we can enter into several hundred years of tradition where it is our habit, it is our custom to come on a Sunday and, and to sing songs and to study the Bible in classes, whatever we call them, and to gather here to go through that to go through that experience and it is in our minds what we ought to be doing as believers it's what we ought to be doing as Christians and to go through that experience and say this is the truth this is what God wants this is what's pleasing to him and yet when we take this model of church and we lay it aside the new testament we see some gap, some great distance between the church of the New Testament and the church of North America that you and I are very much a part of and we are products of. And part of that gap is that we have let the physical walls of our building become the spiritual walls of our heart. We have failed to understand that what God intended the church to do was not to spend all of her time, all of her gifts, all of her resources to use all of her abilities, to spend all of her prayers at a particular address called Wind Baptist Church. His desire is that we would go into all the world, preach the gospel. We know that with our heads. I'm suggesting to you this morning there's a gap between what's in our minds and what's in God's word. So Jesus is going out he didn't set up one spot and say, this is the Jesus place, this is the place where I'm going to be, and you come, and you come and experience and listen to some of the things I've said. You go back out, think about it, have a great week. No, he himself is going to all the cities and villages and towns. He himself is going to every individual. And it seems that as he goes, and I saw this some years ago, and it affected me profoundly, that one of the things that seems to happen every day that Jesus gets up, every place where he goes, is that he is always encountering people and a certain kind of person. Not just anybody, but always, repeatedly, over and over again in the Gospels, he's encountering two basic groups of people. He's encountering people who need relief from God. 
I'm hurting, I'm in pain, I have physical problems, I have emotional problems, I have spiritual problems, I have family problems, and he encounters people that are saying, oh God, I need relief from you. And he gives them relief. The other kind of person he encounters is a person who, who is seeking direction to God. They want to know him. They want to know who he is. Maybe it's something that they searched for long ago, and maybe it's a very small question, a very small thing in their mind, but when they're confronted with Jesus, everything comes out, everything in them. This is who I've been looking for. This is who I've been needing. This is who I've been wanting to meet. And they climb trees, and they gather in crowds, and they press in, and they do everything they can because they know, they don't understand how, but this man, this one, is the one who can truly give me direction to God. He is who I have been looking for my whole life. And so Jesus is going into all the towns and villages, all these communities. Everything he does, he succeeds at. The Father is leading him. The Father is empowering him. And he is showing us what ministry looks like when he is in control when he is in charge. But then something happens in verse 36. In verse 36 it says, but, which immediately should clue you and me in to the fact that there is a problem, there is a something that is needing attention, but, but when he saw the multitudes, so all these crowds are here, they're all coming to him, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. So he sees the multitudes, and he doesn't just see a big crowd. The way it's described, he sees their condition, he sees them as individuals, he sees who they are. Jesus doesn't just minister to crowds. He is looking at individual needs, individual problems, individuals in that crowd. And that's the only way to make sense of what he's about to teach us and what he's about to say in this text. So he looks at them and he sees, he sees them. And when he sees them, he sees the individual and he sees what is happening to that individual. Bible says he is moved with compassion. This is described of Jesus several times in this gospel. That his reaction to human need is not one of, of an additional beatdown. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's your own fault. Well, you know where I am. Call me up sometime and maybe we can talk about it. He doesn't do that. And the Bible says that he's moved with compassion. The word that's used there is a word that refers to physically the inner part of Jesus. And, and in our common language, we would say he felt something in his gut. He felt something on the inside. He didn't just understand or see what was happening with his mind. He felt it with his heart, and, and he felt it on the inside, and it moved him. The 
There's no cold, unfeeling Jesus in this text. He sees the needs and he is moved by them. What does he see? He sees individuals, the Bible says, who are, and it uses two words there. One is weary in my translation, the other is scattered. Weary and scattered. The word weary, in its most basic meaning, describes something that has been torn, the skin of an animal or person that has been torn, skinned, flayed. Uh, It's used in context to describe a feeding frenzy of wild beasts ripping apart their prey. It could also describe simply what happens when sheep are left unattended and they go through the briar patches and they go through limbs and their, 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 their wool gets caught and their skin gets torn and he looks and, and that is what's happening. That's what he's comparing the condition of these individuals in the crowd. He's comparing them to that. They are, their skin is torn. They have been flayed. It's like a feeding frenzy in their life. And it's happening to them. The word scattered describes, it's the very same word used to describe Judas when he betrayed Jesus and he'd been given those pieces of silver, a whole bag full of coins. And when he realized what he had done, he felt such guilt, he felt such remorse, he goes back to the high priest, he wants to give it back, they won't take it back, so he throws it at them. And the coins, as you can imagine, coins, just they would roll everywhere. They would make a big noise. They would roll everywhere. And they would scatter, and they would just lie where they fell, just scattered out all over the place. And he says, that's what these people look like. They have been thrown down. They've been scattered. And like sheep, they're just thoroughly exhausted. They have no energy. They've been ripped, and they're just scattered abroad. And there they are laying there in this world. What's also interesting about those two words is that there's a certain tense and a certain kind of voice that's used there. He uses a perfect tense, which means he's describing their condition, something that's happened to them, and it's continuing, and they are still experiencing the consequences of it. But these are people, we would say, have had a rough past. They've had some hard times, and it has left its mark, these times have. They are scarred, they are wounded, they are damaged, and it's not ever going to change if nothing else happens. Perfect tense. He uses a passive voice, and he's driving home the point that the condition that they are in is not their fault. The fact that they are weary is because something has been done to them. The fact that they are scattered is because something has been done to them. There is a There's a force behind the spiritual condition of these people who are weary and who are scattered. We know, we don't have to read very far in the scripture to know, that in the worldview of Jesus Christ, there there is another ruler of this world, and his name is Satan. And people who do not know Christ are not in the kingdom of God, they are in the kingdom or under the authority of Satan himself. Because Jesus was so successful at casting out demons, he was actually accused of somehow being in cooperation with Satan. 
because they'd never seen anyone with that kind of authority who could overrule demons. The very nature of our salvation is described as a rescue from Satan, a redemption, a setting free a slave from bondage by the paying of a price, which is the blood of Jesus. Throughout the scripture, we are described without Christ as being in bondage and blinded by the God of this world. That is what it means to be weary and scattered and having someone having done that to them through no fault of their own. Yes, they sin. Yes, they are responsible for their own sin. Yes, they will stand in judgment before holy God. But that's not what Jesus sees at this moment. He sees them broken. He sees them blind. He sees them damaged. He sees them wounded. He sees them hurting. And he sees them out there. And it's never going to change as long as nobody goes to them and nothing is ever said to them. They're going to continue to be victimized by this other force. Colossians 1.13, one of my favorite verses, describes salvation in terms of having been conveyed from the domain or the authority of darkness and being conveyed into the kingdom of the Son. When you came to know Christ, you were removed from that realm where Satan rules, and you were put into the kingdom of God, even if you were still sitting in the same spot. You change kingdoms. And so Jesus looks at the crowd, and he sees individuals who are weary and scattered, they're, they are ripped, they have been damaged, they have been cast about, they are never going to change, and then he adds this insight into their condition, like sheep having no shepherd. That's their real problem. That's their greatest need. Repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He is the one who puts everything right puts it back the way God intended. He's the one that if I follow him, he will lead me to places where I can be well satisfied in life, a place where I will sense no need in life, a place where I can be made full in him because he is my shepherd. He leads me to a place where I do not have to be afraid because his rod and his staff, they take care of me. And the greatest need, the greatest problem that they have is they don't have Jesus. They don't have a shepherd. And because they don't have a shepherd, like sheep who don't have a shepherd, they're wandering and they're, they're victimized and they're, they're, they're able to be eaten alive by, by, by predators. They're able to be destroyed. They're able to be put into a place that will never change. Their greatest need is Jesus. How many of you have Jesus this morning? We have what they need. We have him. We have him. We have a shepherd. They don't. And so Jesus sees this. He is moved by this. The Bible tells us what he was moved specifically by, what was on his heart and on his mind. And listen to me. The most significant spurts of growth that you and I ever experience is when we begin to see the world the way he sees it and not the way we see it. We begin to see our lives the way he sees our lives. 
We begin to see and feel what Jesus sees and feels because he manifests his life in us. And as we bow before him, as we yield to him, he begins to speak to us and teach us. And we are changed by that. It's a beautiful, powerful, remarkable time. May this be one of those times. He says in verse 37, then he said to his disciples, then he said to his disciples, now he didn't turn to anybody else about this problem. He didn't turn to anybody else. You know, we as his disciples, I suspect we turn a lot of places when we see a world in trouble. We turn to a lot of places. Right now, I think one of the greatest periods of anxiety in the Christian church I'm seeing right now is over this election. Now, why are we so anxious about this election? And I know all the arguments, and I know all the things that you could say for this candidate or that candidate, but why are we so anxious? Because I believe the root and the core of that anxiety is because we believe that somehow, somehow, someone could get elected that Jesus does not have a hand in. Somehow, deep down, we believe that some, some way, in some, some manner, the government will save us. The government will save us. Now, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, he, he lived under a Roman government, a government that espoused slavery and brutal treatment of people, heavy taxation, oppression of people. They were not a free people. And, and so of all the things that could have happened, all the things that people needed, all the things that needed to be made right in the world, Jesus didn't say what you need to do is try to go and overthrow through whatever means possible the Roman government. Now they did. It took two or three hundred years, but they did. But they didn't do it by, by opposing the government. You know how they did it? They did it by winning one person at a time. So that's why Jesus turned to his disciples and didn't turn to anybody else. He turned to those of us who know him as his shepherd. And listen to what he says, the rest of verse 37. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I can't imagine a more succinct and pure statement of the issue. The harvest is plentiful. Do you believe that? Say, well, Pastor, they just lived in a different time than we do. They were poor. They didn't have much. They didn't have a lot of distractions. They, when Jesus came, he was the biggest show in town. We aren't the biggest show in town. So we have so many different obstacles to deal with than Jesus did. I have a Greek word for that. It's called phooey. <laughs> the harvest truly is plentiful. You say, well, you don't understand. Our fields are hard here in wind. Our fields are hard. Uh, I've talked to my neighbor. They're not interested. I've got family members. They're not interested. The, the fields are not ready for harvest here. The fields need a lot of work. And, um, and so uh, the fields are not ready for harvest here. They are not, the harvest is not plentiful here. You know what? Jesus looked at the crowd and he saw that there was a great harvest. 
And everywhere Jesus went, in the midst of all the hundreds of thousands of people that he could have approached, he kept running into individuals who were ready. Individuals who were ready. In the midst of, of criticism, in, um, in verse uh, chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. He forgives his sins. They said he was blaspheming. He was accused of blaspheming. They rejected him. In another place, he, he calls Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him. And they go and they have a big party at his house. And he was accused of hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. His companions, they weren't right. So he was hanging out with the wrong people. In another place, he goes and, uh, and the Pharisees come and they say, we fast all the time. How come your people don't fast? He's criticized because he's... His, his uh, spirituality doesn't look like ours. Why don't you do what we do? Why don't you act like we act? Why don't you fast like we fast? And he's criticized for that. Just before the story opens up, he takes a man who can't speak because a demon keeps his mouth shut. He can't even talk. And he casts the demon out. It says in verse 33 and verse 34, the Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. You think that was a very responsive group of people? You think he didn't have hard fields? If you want to call them hard fields? You think he didn't have people that rejected him? People that criticized him? People that didn't want anything to do with him? Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. What that means is that at any given time, in any given place where you and I live, there are people who are ready now, people who are hurting now, people who need Jesus now, people who want to know about Jesus now, people that want Jesus now. All over Wynn, Arkansas, all over the Delta, all over the United States, there are people who are more ready to put their trust in Christ than we are to tell them about our shepherd. The harvest is plentiful. Do you believe that? Jesus said, it is. Suddenly, there might be a gap between what Jesus says is true and what you have believed is true. A gap because Jesus says, if you go out and to win, if you go up and down these streets, if you go across to the other part of town, if you go to the north side of town, south part of town, there are people who are ready they are ready right now. They are ready this morning to receive Christ, to put their trust in Christ. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. That's what he says. And what am I believing? What am I believing about that? Now, Jesus tells us much more than that, doesn't he? He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, we need to look at the word laborer, and we need to look at the word few. I'll tell you right now, the word few means puny in comparison. In other words, in comparison to the size of the harvest, the number of laborers is puny. That's what he's saying. Now, this is the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago. This is what he's experiencing as he does ministry. He's saying there's more in this human form, in the incarnation that I am as God in the flesh. I can't get to everybody. 
He said, so I want you to do something about it. But he, he states the problem first. The harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the laborers are few. What is he saying about the laborers? He says there aren't many, but he uses a word there. And the word talks about applied effort, energy. And he's saying that the effort that's available to address the harvest is inadequate. It's an inadequate effort. It's not, there's no work in the sense of applied effort being done to the things that I'm telling you are ready to go right now. This harvest, he says, is ready right now. But those who are willing to make an effort to address that harvest, he says, the number in comparison is puny. Now, I don't know about you, but that boggles my mind. Putting a pencil to it a couple of years ago, the best I can figure is there's approximately 6,000 people in wind this morning who are not attending a church on any kind of regular basis, by any kind of measurement. 6,000 people. They may be a member from childhood to some church. They may go occasionally at Easter at Christmas. But for the most part, 6,000 people. And he says, in comparison to the harvest that is plentiful, those willing to go out into that harvest? Puny. Now, how would you respond to that? What's the solution to that? What does he say? Look at verse 38. Therefore, if this is the situation, if this is the way it is, if this is the truth, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What does he tell us to do? Pray. Pray. The word he uses for pray there is a word that in another context would be translated beg. If I didn't have a job and I was totally at the end of my resources, and I wasn't putting on some kind of a con or something just to trick people into giving me money, I might go out on a street and hold up a cardboard, piece of cardboard saying, my family needs food. And you would say, well, maybe, maybe he's the real thing and maybe you would give me something because of that. But for me to go to that place, to, to come to that place where I'm begging is because I feel an intense need of an intense personal need and an intense sense of urgency. And Jesus says this, this problem that he just talked about, he says, make it your own. Make it your own. Take it personally. Take it personally. And he said, take this need, make it personal, and I want you to go to the Lord of the harvest. You see, there's someone in charge. You say, Pastor, I'm not very smart. I don't have the education of a, of a preacher. I don't have the finances of a successful business person. I don't have the talents of so many of the people I see in the church. I can't teach a Sunday school lesson. I can't do any of those things. Jesus didn't say that, did he? He didn't talk about any of those qualifications, did he? He said, pray, go to the Lord of the harvest. Why? Because the Lord of the harvest has everything you need to do what he calls you to do everything. All the resources, all the 
ability, all the finances, all the power, everything you could possibly need to, to be available, to be obedient. The Lord of the harvest has that. He is sovereign. He is in control. And it's interesting, at the end of that verse, he calls it his harvest, doesn't he? Pray that, that he would send out laborers into his harvest. And suddenly I begin to understand why he felt such compassion as he looked at the multitudes. Because he looked at the multitudes and he knew that there were people there who, if nothing else happened, were going to die and go to hell. They were weary. They were scattered. They were broken. They were damaged. They were, they were, they were awful conditioned to behold from a spiritual perspective. And Jesus felt compassion for them. Why? Because some of those people are his sons. They just don't know it yet. Some of those women are his daughters. They just don't know it yet. He knows that if the laborers go, that's part of his family out there. That's his family. It's my harvest, he says. And so he says, pray that God would raise up people who will make the effort, apply energy into going into the harvest field. Why does he say pray? I read that over and over and over this week. And I thought, Lord, why didn't you just tell them to get out there? I mean, why, why say the problem is there aren't enough laborers? So why don't you just say to your disciples, say, guys, I want you to go out there. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, the very next verse... It says that he called his 12 disciples to him. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. And, and he ultimately, in verse 5, he says that Jesus sent them out. So in the very next chapter, they are sent out. And in fact, if you look how Luke handles the situation, in Luke chapter 9, he talks about sending out the 12. And in Luke chapter 10, he expands it even further and he sends out the 70 or 72, depending on what you're reading. And so Jesus has an ever-widening circle of people who are being sent out, not to be like Jesus, but to minister with the same authority and in the same power of Jesus, teaching, preaching, and healing. They're sent out to do the same ministry to extend or expand the ministry of Jesus Christ. So why didn't he just tell them to go in verse 38? Why is it necessary? That when a need like that, that I was not paying attention to, that I was not clued into, that a need like that, that the best way I can respond as a disciple is not to immediately begin to formulate plans and strategies for how to reach the unreached harvest, but the very first thing he says for me to do is to seek him and to pray to him. Seek the Lord of the harvest. Draw near to him. Get close to him. Come to him, make this a personal need, the need of the 6,000 people went, make that a personal thing, and then come to the Lord of the harvest and start there. Why does he say that? May I suggest that the greatest need of the people out there is to know Jesus, the true shepherd. However, my greatest need, my greatest need, is to become like Jesus, 
Their need is to know Jesus. My need is to become like Jesus. And I believe Jesus told us to pray rather than just go run out and start knocking on doors. Because in that communion with the Lord of the harvest, we are changed. I can't work up something that I don't feel. I can't pretend to see something that I don't see. I can't pretend to have a burden for something that I don't feel anything for. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, pastor, you're telling me to go share my faith and witness to people and talk to them about Jesus. And I don't feel any sense of obligation or responsibility or movement to do that. I think that's why Jesus said to pray. Because it's in that moment of communion that the Jesus who sees, the Jesus who feels, the Jesus who has a heart cry to the Lord of the harvest, as he draws near to my heart, my heart is influenced and affected by his heart. And I am changed by that encounter. I am not left the same. This is not a, oh God bless us as we go out and start a Monday night visitation program. This is, oh God, change me. He says, the greatest need that my people have is that they would see what I see and feel what I feel. So step one, come to me, he says. Draw near. Listen to my heart. Let me open your eyes. When he says at the end of verse, in uh, verse 38, he says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Can I give you one more insight there into that word sin? The fascinating thing about that word sin is he doesn't use the word that he normally uses when he describes missionary activity in the Bible, whether it's in the Gospels or whether it's in the book of Acts or in Paul's writings. He uses a word, we get the word apostle from it, um, apostello, it means to send away. And a missionary is someone who is sent away. And that is the standard way we understand being sent to make disciples and so forth. We think in terms of being sent out, sent away. But he uses a different word here. He doesn't talk about pray that God would raise up missionaries. That's not what he says. The word that he uses there, ekbalo, is the same word used in verse 33 to describe what Jesus did when he told a demon to get out of a person and the demon was cast out, expelled. And he says, I want you to pray that, that God would expel my people into the harvest. Cast them out into the harvest. I want you to pray that would happen. If you ever had the occasion of finding yourself suddenly in a spiritual conversation with someone that you had never planned, you may have felt like that you just got expelled into the harvest. There is something about the people of God, all of us, 
that want to experience God within the boundaries of what is comfortable to us. I want to come on Sunday morning. I want to hear a sermon. I want to sit in a Bible study group. I want a place where I can serve and do nice things for nice people on a regular basis. I want to experience a kind of Christianity that is comfortable and that has certain boundaries to it. And this is a place where I feel safe and where I feel comfortable. But Jesus is saying, I want you to pray that, that we would be expelled from our comfort zone. That I would be suddenly thrust out into the harvest. I mean, if you look carefully, yes, the disciples walked with Jesus. Yes, they saw what Jesus did. Yes, they heard his teaching. But you, did, if you read carefully, he said, now you're empowered. Now you go. Go. I don't know about you, but if I was one of the 12, I think I would have felt cast out of my comfort zone. It's one thing to follow Jesus and watch Jesus do that stuff. It's another thing to suddenly be thrust into a place and walk into a town and you're it. At least that's how it feels. You're it. And the truth of the matter is, is that when you and I are taken from a place where I am in control and put into a place where I'm not in control, I suddenly discover that God is in control and that's enough. But what God has to do to get us there is the part that's worrisome to me, personally. To move me from a place where I am in control to a place where I'm not in control so that I can discover that He is in control. Have you made that discovery? Jesus says the fields are white for harvest in Wynn, Arkansas. He's either telling the truth or he's not telling the truth. I believe he's telling the truth. He says the only way to respond to this circumstance where there's a great harvest and a puny response, the only way to do that, he says, is to pray. Is to pray. Draw near to him. 